That's Luke 7, uh, verses 11 to 35. I was practicing the wrong reading, by the way. The Lord's Prayer is in Luke 11, not Luke 7, but we're, we're moving to this chapter instead. Um, so starting from verse 11. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the, the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged the way, that God's way was right, because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves, because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Thank you very much, Amanda, for reading for us. Uh, let me add my welcome uh, to those of you at home uh, and uh, to you in the building. How are you with decisions? What sort of a decision maker are you? Uh, truth be told, it's not my strong suit. Uh, I've, I've met and worked with, maybe you have too, people who are exceptional at decisions, instantly know what needs to be done and decide. I am not like that at all. At the point of decision, I am more likely to, to hover on the brink, teetering, uncertain, wondering, 
keeping wandering, doing a little bit more wandering, until sometimes the decision's gone away and it's too late. I suspect in that tendency I am not alone. Because after all, deciding is, well, I mean, deciding is, it's decisive, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty cut and dried, deciding. Um, it's not for nothing that the word decide has the same second bit as some other words, like homicide and suicide. Have you ever thought about that? And the reason is, it's the derivation of the word, the reason is that because when you decide something, you put to death all sorts of other possibilities, don't you? That's the idea behind the word. You decide this, I'm going with that, but that means I'm not going with all of this. So this choice is mine, but all these other things, well, they're put to death now, because I can't have those. Makes me not feel so bad now about being a bad decision maker. It's quite a stressful thing deciding, isn't it? And maybe this weekend you've been busy deciding. Black Friday weekend. It's a good weekend for lots of decisions, isn't it? All those offers coming across your screens or your phones. You're going to go for this one? You're going to go for that one? This mobile phone deal? This new TV? Is this the one for me? Or, or perhaps um, you're at the stage of life where you're starting to think about end of school, university, UCAS applications are underway. Maybe you're starting to think about which is the university for me, which is the course for me. Is this the one that I should go for? Or, or maybe this very day you're taking a decision about church. Maybe you're here this morning because you're new to Cambridge, still sussing out churches, and, and you're here this morning thinking, is this the church for me? Is this the one? Or maybe a relationship. And the more you get to know this particular person, the, the more you're wondering, are you the one? Well, maybe you notice in this passage that Amanda has just read for us, at the heart of it is decision. At the heart of it is a question. It's there in verse 19 when the disciples that John has sent come with that question, are you the one? Are you Jesus? Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? In other words, at the very heart of this passage is, is a decision about what you're going to do with Jesus. What you're going to decide about him. Now, it could be at this point then that you're immediately thinking to yourselves, oh, well, that's okay then, because I took my decision about Jesus. I've decided to be a Christian. So I've, I've, I've done that decision. That's good. If that's what this sermon's about, I can just nod off now. When in fact, I'll zone out and I'll start planning my Christmas shopping. Uh, no, well, don't do that. Don't do that. Come back, come back. Quick, 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 come back. Because actually, we all know, don't we, that the, the decisions that we make about Jesus, there may be one big decision at the beginning, but that's not the only decision we make about Jesus. No, 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 we're constantly making decisions 
about what we're doing with Jesus. Every day, you're taking decisions that have a bearing upon what you're doing or not doing with Jesus Christ. And we also, all of us know, don't we, that decisions kind of vary. There are some decisions that are kind of provisional, tentative. Some decisions that, frankly, are pretty half-hearted. So, so you could decide to join a church, but never really quite throw yourself in. You could decide to go to that university, but always on the fringe of all the activities. You could even decide to get married, and all the time be holding something back. Now, we know that decisions vary in the way that we make them. So this question about Jesus, this question, are you the one? Are you the one for me? Are you the one that I am going to follow? That's a decision for all of us, because we're making that decision every day. And what I want to notice is that in this passage, the way that Jesus answers the question, here, here are John's disciples, they've come along and they've said to him, look, are you the one? The way that Jesus answers it is to point to the stuff he's doing, to point to the miracles. Do you see verse 22? He says to them, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind received sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor, Jesus says. And, and, in, and in saying that, he's quoting words from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. In other words, he's saying, look, you remember that stuff that Isaiah said would happen one day? Well, it is. Uh, with all of the implication that, yes, he is the one. So if Jesus points us back to, 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 to the miracles, then that'd be a good place for us to, to look this morning. And let's do that by specifically looking at the miracle that, that triggers this exchange uh, in uh, Luke chapter 7. And I want to just notice, notice two things uh, about uh, the miracle. First, notice the compassion that Christ feels. Compassion's a good word, isn't it? You know how some words just sort of explain themselves. Well, compassion does that, wouldn't it? Compassion with feeling. In other words, you feel with somebody. You enter into their feeling. Um, and in the Gospels, this word compassion is the word that is most commonly used to describe the emotions of Jesus Christ. Again and again, we're told that Jesus had compassion uh, for this person, for that situation. And compassion, uh, or the word that lies behind this, the original word that's used here, it's a powerful word with a sense of being sort of stirred to the core of your being. Sort of, it's actually a word that, that conjures up sort of right in your guts, stirred in, in, in your guts. So strong, core of your being. Jesus is, is stirred by this compassion that he feels. And sometimes I think um, um, those who are younger more stirred sometimes than those of us uh, who are oldens. Uh, when, when a scandal stirs a passion for justice or a, or a disaster galvanizes a relief effort, sometimes it's, it's the young who seem to catch that 
and are stirred by it. And those of us who are older, a bit hardened, a bit cynical, sadly not quite stirred in the same way. But there are some hurts, aren't there, that, that always stand out, like the death of a child. I think it was about 1977. That's a long time ago, isn't it? Nigel Pont was travelling to our school play rehearsal one night. It was a dark night, wet night. He was coming on his moped. We were all very jealous because he'd got a moped and none of us had. But dark, wet night. Car the other way, took him out. And at just 17, Nigel Pont died. I'd known him since uh, he was four. Well, I was four. We'd started right at infant school together. It was, as best I remember it, the first time I had been up close to a death like that. Uh, and I couldn't really get my head around it. I don't know how his parents coped. As best I remember it, he was their only child. And, and that's how it is here, isn't it? Only worse, because this young man is not only the only child of his mother, but his mother is also a widow. And that means that him dying leaves her utterly alone. At a time when to be without a provider, to be without a protector, uh, was about as bad as it got. And I take it that that's why, uh, when we get to verse 13, uh, we read that when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, filled with compassion. Maybe you can picture this scene in your mind's eye. It's actually a meeting, if you look carefully, of, of two crowds. That's what we're told. Uh, there's one crowd that has Jesus at its head. Because disciples are following him. People are following him. Loads of people are gathered around him because of all the stuff that he's been doing. And he leads this large crowd towards this very tiny town of Nain. Uh, and as he approaches, uh, another crowd is coming the other way. Maybe, in fact, that they heard the crowd even before they saw it, because in those days, a, a funeral procession in the Middle East was, it was a noisy affair. You'd have these professional mourners who would weep and wail. And you might think, oh, well, that's just for show, isn't it? It's all a bit silly. But actually, probably those mourners who wept and wailed provided, as it were, the context where the people who were really affected could also weep and wail without feeling exposed. Because there was plenty to weep and wail about. So different, isn't it, to our reserved and restrained expressions of public grief. So maybe they did hear the procession first, and then they see it coming through the gate of the town. And, and maybe, therefore, it is the, the mother that Jesus sees first, all her own at the front, 
no husband by her side, no other children to provide solace for her because she only has one son. And he's stretched out on the funeral bier behind her. It is a desperate scene. Death always is. And as he sees that scene, as he sees that woman, Jesus' heart goes out to her. He's moved by it, stirred to the very core of his being. And and just that alone is a striking thought, isn't it? That our struggles, our suffering, our hurts move Jesus. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the, the... The Lord that you follow is not a distant Lord, not not cut off, not separated, not indifferent to your struggles and your difficulties. No, he's he's a God who is moved by the hurt that we feel. So in our times of grief, and there are many in our church family at the moment navigating the paths of grief, in our times of grief, Our God is moved by our hurt. But of course, anyone can be moved. The really significant thing here is that Jesus acts. So so come from first noticing the, the compassion that Christ feels to noticing, secondly, the power that Jesus Christ shows. It's it's a striking thing that that in this episode, no one asks Jesus to do anything. Often, you'll you'll know that, won't you? Often in the gospel accounts, a request comes. A leper cries out, asking to be cleansed. A blind man on the roadside hears the noise of Jesus going past and, 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 and shouts, begging to be given sight. At the very start of this chapter, the first Uh, story of chapter 7, we meet a centurion who sends to Jesus to ask him to come and and heal his servant. And that story, uh, there in verse 9, ends with Jesus being amazed at the faith that the centurion shows. But none of that happens here. Here there is neither appeal nor any declaration of faith. No, here Jesus simply chooses. He sees, he is moved, and he goes. It is what God does. We're coming to Christmas. We're thinking about the birth of Jesus Christ. No one asked Jesus to be incarnate. No one asked him to come and rescue. Now, in some sense, from glory, Jesus saw saw the misery that the fallen world endured. Jesus saw and was moved and decided to come. And I wonder, as Jesus moved to the widow, did she see him coming? 
I wonder, maybe not. Uh, maybe that widow at the front of the funeral procession has just got her eyes to the ground, tears streaming down her face, so that she had no idea that Jesus was approaching her. Perhaps it was only when he was right by her side that she became aware of his presence and then heard his words, spoken with such gentleness, such compassion. But also those words spoken with something else, some kind of clarity, some kind of confidence, some kind of authority even. Don't cry. What a thing to say to a grieving mother. Don't cry. It is the kind of thing that we might sometimes say, but we'd say it differently. You or I might say, please don't cry, because I can't bear it. Please don't cry, because it's cutting me up inside. Please don't cry, because your raw grief is just too much for me. Please don't cry. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. His please don't cry is very different. Something very different is happening here. And I wonder if the woman sensed that. And I wonder if she lifted her head and gazed into his face as she saw the kindest face that she'd ever seen. And I wonder then if she turned and watched as Jesus walked past her to the funeral stretcher behind her. And now perhaps all the wailing had stopped because something so extraordinary is happening. Jesus is interrupting the funeral. He's stepping into this rite of mourning. Who does he think he is? What does he think he's doing as he approaches the funeral bier, the boy laid out on the stretcher? And now everybody is silent. And the people carrying the young man, they've stopped, confused, don't know what to do, because Jesus is approaching it, reaching out, touching it. He shouldn't do that. It'll make himself unclean. And then Jesus speaks again. Young man, I say to you, get up. And a heart that had long stopped beating fires again. Eyes that had glazed over, pupils that were fixed, snap back into focus. Muscles that were inert and useless contract again. And the boy sits up and begins to talk we're told. We don't know what he said. What were his first words, do you suppose? Did those eyes lock onto the view of his mother, now running towards him? Her eyes now filled, not with tears of grief, but now with tears of joy. First words, Mother, why are you crying? 
And Jesus, we are told, gave the young man back to his mother. It's beyond moving, isn't it, just to, just to think about it, to imagine the scene. Think what it must have been like to, to be there, to be present at that moment. No wonder we're told that the people were filled with awe. We do believe that this happened. You're a cynic, maybe. You're a skeptic. You're somebody looking into the Christian faith. You said, no, it couldn't happen. This thing couldn't happen. These things don't happen. Remember, the point of Jesus coming was that it was unique. He was unique. And therefore, unique things happened, like this. But do you also see that it is only representative? This event points beyond itself, to something much, much more. Because all that happened here was that death was, as it were, delayed for a time. One day, this boy would die again. One day, his mother would also die. One way or another, death would still separate this young man and his mother. But the reason that Jesus does this is so that he can show us something else. To show us who he is. To show us the authority that he has. To show us what he's capable of. There's, there's another story. Um, maybe you're familiar with it. In, in John's Gospel account. Another story of a, of, a, of a rising from the dead, in this case where Jesus raises Lazarus, his friend. And in the midst of that story, in conversation with Lazarus's sister, Martha, Jesus says the most extraordinary thing. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. You notice, he says, he doesn't say, I do resurrection and life. I mean, that would be extraordinary enough, wouldn't it, to be able to say, I do resurrection. You know, pretty, pretty cool thing to be able to say. But actually, it's beyond that. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. That exists in me, that power, that capacity, that authority. And this miracle, this raising of the boy in Nain, it signals that claim, a claim to have power over life and death eternal life and death. That's what Jesus is showing us here. He, he performs this miracle in time to point to his capacity for something outside time. This capacity to offer eternal life to anyone who will decide to follow him. And, and that, of course, is, is precisely why the question that we began with matters so much. As we ask of Jesus, are you the one? Or, or to put it more personally, are you my one? Is he your one? And that's the question this passage ends with. It, it's fine, isn't it, to, to ask our questions of Jesus Christ. Uh, he, he would welcome that. 
to come to him, if you like, and say, look, Jesus, are you the one to, to puzzle over, to, to, to listen, uh, to ask our questions? Fine to do that. In the new year, we'll run a series of evenings called Hope Explored, where we'll invite people, maybe you want to come and be a part of that, invite people to do precisely that. Ask all the questions you like. But after we have asked our questions, a moment comes when we've asked enough and we need to decide. I reached that point in February 1981. But I told you earlier on that I'm not very good at decisions, so it wasn't a very easy evening. And I told my friend Richard that I thought I needed to do a little bit more thinking. Procrastinate. On the edge. Don't decide. I'll go away. I'll think a bit more, Richard. That'd be all right. I've got a few more questions. And Richard, in the way that Richard does, said, no, you don't. No, you know enough. You've asked enough questions. You know enough now. You need to decide. It was perhaps the kindest thing that anyone has ever said to me. Because it meant that that evening I put the alternatives to one side and I decided. I made up my mind and I committed myself to Jesus Christ. But it was only the first of a lot of decisions, wasn't it? True for you too. You may not be able to remember a particular moment when you took that decision, but in a sense, to, to be a Christian involves a whole series of decisions. We, make, we may make one big one at the beginning, but then we make a whole series, thousands, almost thousands every day that have a bearing on our following of Jesus Christ. Because we can be half-hearted, can't we? We can be those who, who never really quite embrace Jesus Christ, never really commit ourselves to him, never give him everything, but hold lots of us back. In that sense, we can be something like the the children in the marketplace that Jesus refers to right at the very end of our passage. You spot that there? Jesus says it's, it's a bit like children in a marketplace who, who, as it were, say, we played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't cry. Whatever you did wasn't quite good enough for us. You know, you danced and we said, well, why don't you cry? You cried and we said, well, why don't you dance? Somehow, never enough. Some reason, some excuse to keep holding back. Keeping ourselves from him. Well, this Advent, as David said earlier, we, we remember both the first coming of Jesus. Of course, we anticipate that four weeks before Christmas. We're thinking about Jesus' first coming. But, but we're also looking forward to his second coming, anticipating that return of Jesus. And at that return of Jesus, he will say to every single one of us, get up. 
whether we're dead or whether we're alive, at the moment that he returns. In a sense, Jesus' word comes to us, young man, young woman, old man, old woman. I say to you, get up. And we will. He has that authority. We will rise to meet our maker. And eternity will stretch out in front of us. And at that point, the only thing that will really matter will be the decisions that we have already taken about him. Why don't I lead us in a prayer? Uh, thank you, Lord God, for this account of this extraordinary event uh, recorded for us that we might know and understand uh, the authority that the Lord Jesus has over life and death. Uh, written for us so that we might uh, have reason uh, to come to him and to decide uh, that we want this Jesus uh, to be both our saviour, uh, the one who can grant us eternal life, uh, but also uh, that this Jesus might be our Lord, uh, this Jesus who shows such compassion. Uh, thank you that uh, uh, you have been moved uh, to come for our salvation. Thank you that you are such a God. And uh, as we approach uh, this Christmas season, uh, would we find all sorts of uh, fresh reasons to rejoice in your great salvation? And would we, in all of the decisions uh, of our lives, uh, commit ourselves uh, wholeheartedly uh, to be your disciples? And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.